As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome to Ask N.T. Wright Anything. I'm Ruth Jackson and today we're going back into the archives from 2020 to look at another of Tom's very popular books, Broken Signposts. Tom talked to Justin Briley about the book and answers listener questions around how God forgives conversion and how you can be sure that you're saved. Let's join them. Don't forget, if you want to ask NT Wright anything, then subscribe to our newsletter at premierunbelievable.com and we'll send you the link to submit your questions, as well as giving you access to hours of bonus content. Well, it's a real joy to be joined by Tom again for today's edition of the show. And uh, Tom, we're going to be talking about various issues around uh, salvation. Comes up an awful lot in the questions that come in from from various folks. Um, now, I, I've mentioned it, Broken Signpost. Um, it's the new book, um, The at least in the UK edition, the subtitle is How Christianity Makes Sense of the World. Um, tell us a little bit about the latest book then. What's What's it all about? Okay, this grew out of a couple of other things that I'd done. Some of the listeners may be familiar with my book, Simply Christian, where I start off with four things that I call echoes of a voice, things that uh, are around in the culture, in the air, what it means to be human, that we are all interested in justice and relationships and spirituality and beauty, and that they seem to be beckoning us and calling to us, but they don't quite take us all the way, as it were. Many people have seen them as signs of maybe there is a God and maybe this is what it's all about, but then the beauty fades and justice is denied and our best relationships let us down or end in death and so on. And so I let that hang there at the beginning of Simply Christian, but the thought didn't go away. And the more I lived with it, the more I wanted to add three others as well, namely freedom and truth and power. So now there are seven of these, which I now call signposts. And the reason I call them broken is because they look as if they're pointing to God or to the meaning of life, but they do all let us down. Freedom notoriously, one person's freedom is produced at the cost of another person's slavery, etc. And and I was thinking about all that in relation to another project, the Gifford Lectures that I did a couple of years ago, uh, published now as History and eschatology. And in chapter seven of the Gifford Lectures, I just did a short version of Broken Signposts, in only perhaps in a somewhat more academic mode. But the, the key insight for me was this, and this explains why the book then took the shape it did, 
that when we think about justice being such a wonderful thing, but it always seems to be denied, and freedom being such a wonderful thing, but it always gets trampled on, and power being such a necessary thing, but it always gets abused, and so on and so on, I suddenly realized that I'm talking about the story of Jesus going to his death on the cross, that as you read, particularly in John's gospel, this is a story about Pontius Pilate flagrantly denying justice, trampling on freedom, um, rubbishing the idea of truth, what is truth, and so on. And also that the beauty which is there in the, the, the wonderful stories in John's gospel seems to go horribly dark as, as Jesus died. And, and the, the relationship which he has uh, with his disciples, that gets uh, denied because Judas betrays him and Peter denies him and so on. So suddenly I had this sense of maybe this is part of why the story of the cross is so powerful, because it tells us that these signposts are true signposts. In other words, we are not living in a Jean-Paul Sartre universe where everything is just a sick joke and doesn't mean anything. These are true signposts, but it isn't the case that they're pointing up to God and we have to try to ratchet ourselves up to get to God through them. Rather, God has come down to the place where, in our midst, all the signposts are broken, and the cross sets up a new sort of signpost, a signpost which says, these really do matter, and God has come into your midst to take an, our brokenness upon himself. So that was the, the train of thought which I found very powerful when I thought it, I still find quite powerful. Um, so what I did with this book, and I've never done this in, in any other book, um, was to, to line up the seven signposts and talk about them, but to do so in relation to, to one particular New Testament text. And the obvious one for me was and is John's gospel. So that each of the signposts, justice, spirituality, relationships, beauty, etc., um, I, I set up the question and then I say, let's see what John might have to say about this. And I found as I did that, it opened up all sorts of new pathways into John's gospel. And some readers have told me already that it's done so for them as well. So I then put in between the chapters little two or three page hints on how to read John. So my hope is that at one level, this book will present quite a different sort of argument, a kind of apologetics, but not the way we normally do it, for saying, here are all these things in the wide world which all seem to point to God, but in fact, God has come down to the place where they're all broken. But then also it functions as an introduction to reading John's Gospel, um, that, that maybe if we come with these things in our minds and read John either at a run or in little bits, we might get all sorts of things out of that amazing book, which we hadn't got before. So the whole thing kind of ties together. And of course, it is all about Jesus. In a sense, everything I write is all about <laughs> Jesus, or I hope it is. Um, and, and I'm already getting very interesting feedback from, as I say, friends who've, who've read it and been able to engage the, the, it. I the idea resonates very strongly with me. Um, I, I love the subtitle as well, how Christianity makes mm. sense of the world, because for me, that that is the way I think of my apologetics, actually. It's not that I have to prove something in yeah. some irrefutable way, but I look at the evidence that's out there and I say, what makes best sense of this? Does, yeah. does a naturalistic, atheistic account of the world or does a, a, a theistic and a specifically yeah. Christian account? And, and for me, these signposts, as you call them, justice, love, spirituality, yeah. beauty, freedom, truth, power. I mean, these are all things people do believe in. Even Absolutely. if they don't believe in God, even if Absolutely. they don't believe the Christian story, there's something we can agree that things Absolutely. are important in the world. But the question is, how do we explain them? And for you, 
evidently Christianity makes a better sense yeah. of these things. Yeah. And and that sense of making better sense, that sense of an aha, is, is I think, a very powerful argument, if it is an argument, or at least a, a demonstration. And of course, the tradition of doing it this way goes back to C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He starts off with justice, with the fact that in a playground, uh, one child will say to another, that's not fair. In other words, you don't have to have a master's degree in comparative philosophy or ethics in order to know that there is this sort of thing called justice and that often it goes wrong. Um, it's something which is deep in our human DNA and likewise for the other things that we've talked about. Well, wonderful. Thank you very much for a, a short intro to the book, Tom. Uh, Broken Signposts is available now uh, via SBCK, probably published, I assume, by um, your US Harper, publisher. Harper One, Harper, Harper Harper One in, in San Francisco, yes. In, in the USA. We'll make sure there's a link from today's show to where you can get hold of the book. Um, let's leap into the questions uh, on today's topic. Uh, salvation. Uh, the cross, um, something we've, as I've said, covered before in various ways. But um, why don't we go straight in for Ashley's question in London? Ashley says, I would classify myself as a Catholic Christian. However, I don't fully believe in the Bible. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? There are so many denominations and I feel that religion has too many different views. Therefore, if you believe in God and are a good person, then you're still a person of faith. Could you let me know your views on this, please? Well, there's probably a few gaps yes. we'll have to fill in here. With sure. I mean, my, my heart goes out to Ashley because because I, I know many people who who are in exactly this position. And there's a sense of, yes, I, I'm not a disbeliever. I'm not an atheist. I do believe in God and I'm doing the best I can. I'm kind of struggling along. Um, I would say the question of whether you fully believe in the Bible depends on so many other things that we've all heard somebody say, oh, you know, you can't be sure that um, Jonah was really swallowed by a whale or whatever. Oh, my goodness, maybe I don't believe the Bible and so on. And I would say that's not the place to start. The place to start is with Jesus. The, 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 put Jesus in the middle of the picture as he is at the climax of the picture in the whole biblical story. You know, if you read the Old Testament, it kind of ends with question marks. What's going to happen now? Is this great dream of Abraham and Isaiah and the Psalms, is it all going to be for nothing? And then the New Testament is written in such a way as to say, this is where it was all going here it is. Look at this amazing figure and let him look at you. And then if in the light of that, you discover that you are reading the Bible differently and it does all make sense so that it's not a matter of do I or don't I believe in the Bible. It's as I am trying to learn more about Jesus and reading this amazing book, I can see bits sort of making sense around me and making sense of me. And that's far more important than an intellectual belief or disbelief in the Bible. And also it kind of brings into sharp focus what a belief in God might look like. I mean, one of the things we've had, had to realize, I think more people do realize this now, is that the word God is not univocal. That is to say, the word God means different things to different people, and it always has done. In the ancient world, there were many gods, and they behaved differently. And you had gods for this purpose and gods for that purpose, the god of the sea, the god of war, the god of love, the god of, uh, of, of shopping, whatever it was. Um, and, and they were different. And when the Bible talks about the god, hotheos in Greek, it's very specifically, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the creator God, and actually he is the only one 
who deserves the name God. And then we discover scarily that you find out who this God is by looking at Jesus. And that remains one of the biggest personal, theological, intellectual challenges ever. But it makes so much sense because when Jesus is in the middle of the picture, and the more we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the more we get this, I think, mm. then the other things that we vaguely believe or that we're struggling with how to live, whatever, these things come into focus. So, yes, if you believe in God and if you're a good person, then you probably are still a person of faith. But if that faith isn't anchored in Jesus, it can wander around all over mm -hmm. the place. And the vision of God may be different. And the vision of what it means to be a good person may yes. be different as well. Um, and you don't have to live very long in the real world before you discover that people's views of what it is to be a good person do well, well, absolutely. Um, very wildly. I mean, so, just, just to kind of come back just to the core, and I suppose just to boil it down for Ashley, if she's asking, am I a Christian? How would you encourage someone like Ashley to simply, what, what sort of could they ask themselves or, or look at themselves and say, yes, actually, I am a Christian because what, what, what are the signs, if you like? I, I think, I mean, the signs are something to do with Jesus. And because we're all different personality wise, for some people that will at once be a warm rush, a sense of Jesus knows me and I love him. And, and we have this thing. And yes, that's, that's tremendously important for others who don't approach life and relationships in, in the same way for personality reasons. It may be more about, reading the story of Jesus and finding that it gradually makes sense of so many other things. But Jesus has got to be in the middle of the picture. Mm -hmm. if, if you take Jesus out of the picture, then the word Christian simply <laughs> wouldn't mean the same thing at all. The clue's in the uh, name, isn't it? Yes. Well, the clue's in the name, exactly. exactly. Although still in British culture, at least, the word Christian um, for some people just means a nice, sensible, decent, upstanding person. Certainly mm. that's when I was growing up in the 1950s. Um, people use the word Christian to mean, you know, a decent sort of person who you yes. can trust, um, irrespective of their views about God and Jesus. But I think we've got probably beyond that now. Look, let's go from London to California. Matt asks, love all you do, podcast and books. Um, but this is Matt's question. It's about forgiveness. And did Jesus need to die on the cross in order for the sins that he forgave beforehand to be forgiven? Uh, Matt says, I've heard it is his death that forgives them. Yet he seemed to be forgiving sins before his death in the gospel accounts. And I've heard wide, yes. wide, wildly different explanations for this. So what's going on with the sins that Jesus apparently forgives before his actual atoning death on the cross? Yes, of course. Uh, we can be very mechanical about this. And I sense that this question comes out of uh, a, a slide into a sort of mechanical view, as though something happened and before then there was no forgiveness and after then there was. And it's quite clear from the stories in the Gospels and from the stories in the whole Old Testament that that's simply not the case. That if you look at um, the, the, the great stories, the great prophecies of Isaiah or uh, the story of Joseph forgiving his brothers in Genesis, um, there's a sense that forgiveness is always God's gift to God's people um, but there's a sense in which, as it were, for that to make sense, ultimately, something had to happen which would retrospectively validate it all, which would retrospectively sign off 
on all the forgiveness that had been characteristic of in God, in the lives of God's people before. I mean, when you take the ex the exile in Babylon, the exile in Babylon is seen in terms of God's punishment for Israel's idolatry and sin, which is why in say the Book of Lamentations, which is lamenting the fact that they're in Babylon, etc., the promise comes through in Lamentations. Um, God has forgiven your sins, he will keep you in exile no longer. And the return from exile functions as the sign that God has forgiven Israel's sins. That's so in the famous passage in Isaiah 40 as well. Comfort, comfort my people because your, your sins have been dealt with and you're free to go home. Um, so if we say, how did that happen? The prophet Isaiah says, well, it's to do with the servant of the Lord. And this strange picture in Isaiah 53 about the one who suffered and was despised and rejected and wounded for our transgressions and so on. And it's as though the prophet is aware that sooner or later, something has got to happen through which this will mean what it already means. And I I don't think we need to worry too much about God's timescale, but it's as though God knows from the beginning that this this is going to happen, that the, the servant is going to give his life as a ransom for many, and that on the basis that it is going to happen, then forgiveness can be announced in advance and, and is so. So it, it isn't a problem for me about when Jesus then announces forgiveness for people during the course of the gospel, though it raises the question at the time, who is this that forgives sins? What's he talking about? How can he do this? And the gospel writers say, well, look at him as he goes to the cross, look at him as God raises him from the dead. And then you'll see that it's all because of that retrospectively, that everything that went before makes sense. Now, questions around forgiveness and, uh, if you like, who the forgiveness is for are often come, to, you know, come about, especially when it comes to a sort of Calvinistic interpretation of, of who is the elect. I've got two related questions here on what's sometimes technically called limited atonement. And perhaps you can give what you, you think is the, uh, the definition of that, Tom. But let me read them first of all. Um, Seth out in Clarkson, Kentucky says, while there are many different views of the atonement, such as penal substitution, etc., there's always been the theological conflict of Calvinism and Arminianism, the thought that Christ died solely for the elect or that Christ died for all people. What do you think? Who's right? Who's wrong? And John in Adelaide, Australia, has a similar question. But this comes with a sort of pastoral dimension, says I'm losing my evangelistic zeal due to my embrace of definite atonement. Perhaps what he means here is, you know, what we more commonly call limited atonement in the, the sort of tulip um, uh, acronym. Uh, and uh, John says, I acknowledge that for God to save anyone at all is an act of mercy. I also understand that God is under no obligation to save anyone. Therefore, I see God's redemption of even just one person as a beautiful thing. Yet I still find myself aching inside because I want to be able to look at anyone in the street and know in my heart that they are someone for whom Christ died. This seems to me a more beautiful truth. Yet I cannot affirm that because I don't know for sure if Christ has died for them. I'd be interested to hear your take on this. And how can one be fervent in evangelism in light of this view? So what, what, what do you make of this idea of limited yeah. atonement? Christ only died for some. 
I had never heard of this view until I was a student here in Oxford in the late 60s, early 70s. And I ran into some people who became good, close friends. And we, we worked together and prayed together, some of whom had been reading some of the 17th century Puritans for whom limited atonement, the idea of Christ dying only for the elect, was absolutely central on the grounds that uh, unless you could say that, then Christ's death was, as it were, a gesture of possibility rather than an achievement of something definite and absolute, which is why here it's called definite atonement. And I have a friend to this day, a close friend, um, who will still argue for this and uh, we'll talk about it in terms of, of, of specific atonement or complete atonement or something, that, that this is what God determined to do. Now, um, though in the case of that friend and of others that I've mentioned, I don't think this ever um, actually resulted in a slackening of evangelistic zeal. But the older I've got, and I hope this doesn't sound sort of typical old man thing to say, the more I've been reading the Bible in its original context, in the context of the first century Jewish world inhabited by Jesus, inhabited by Paul, which is radically, radically different in the way it's thought from the 16th and 17th century in uh, Europe, in Britain, in Germany, in Holland, and so on, where some of these things were being hammered out in the 16th and 17th century. And I find myself now looking at those questions as between, is it Calvin or is it Arminius? It's got to be one or the other. In the same way as the the famous old joke, which we may have said to each other before, about um, uh, somebody on a, somebody from the Indian subcontinent finding themselves in Belfast on a dark night and being set upon by a gang of youths saying, "Are you a Catholic or a Protestant?" And he says, "No, I'm a Hindu. I'm a Hindu." And the answer is, "Are you a Catholic Hindu or a Protestant Hindu?" <laughs> um, you know, this question just doesn't work like that, and we need a, a larger frame. So when I then find in Second Corinthians five, for instance, Saint Paul saying, "We know that one died for all, therefore all died," we say, "Well." Paul, does that mean you're a universalist? And Paul says, absolutely not. Of course not. You can tell from every letter he writes that he thinks there is a definite sense that, uh, that this is not an automatic done deal that all we can do now is sit back and say Christ died for everybody. So we're all going to heaven. Isn't that nice? And that's why I and some of my other works I've tried to probe into more deeply into the meaning of of Christ dying for sinners and what that actually then does. And part of the problem is that the Calvin versus Arminian thing and the definite or limited atonement thing comes out of a concentration on this forensic legal aspect of atonement, which is there, which is part of the deal, but often to the exclusion of um, what is known in the trade as the Christus Victor strand, which is God winning the victory over the powers of sin and darkness and death through the representative substitutionary death of Jesus. And if we do that, we put more weight onto this legal framework. Did it work like this or did it work like that? And then we get into these puzzles. Whereas if we say, as I tried to argue in my book, The Day the Revolution Began, that God is going to defeat the principalities and powers that have held us captive, that have enslaved us, but the way they have enslaved us is because when we sin, we make over our power to them, as it were. And so when God deals with our sin, he robs the idols of their power. 
this is hugely important in, say, John 12 or Colossians 2 or Hebrews 2, um, various passages. And it's actually part of the whole messianic victory of Jesus, which is what all four Gospels are about. Jesus goes to the cross to win the messianic victory. And he does that through substitution. But if you take substitution out of that context and make it a thing in itself, then you get into this false either or. This is, um, yes, but are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? So I'm afraid there's no easy answer except to say, please, at this moment in our history as Christians, let's stop allowing the controversies of the 16th and 17th century to define who we have to be. Let's read the Bible for all it's worth in its own context. And even if that defamiliarizes ourselves up to a point, please let's then work with that and see a larger vision within which the things which are often polarized against one another may actually be held together. And when we do that, the thing which comes through to me again and again is Paul saying, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And okay, that's very definite and particular. But Paul doesn't mean just for me. This for Paul, go back to Second Corinthians 5 again, the love of the Messiah constrains us because it's an overflowing love and you can't limit it. The idea of limiting God's rescuing love is, is just almost blasphemous. It's ridiculous. So we need to be able to rethink these great swathes of biblical theology. And I would say the tools to do so are there in the first century, but don't let ourselves be imprisoned by the thought forms of the 16th and 17th century, or for that matter, the 19th and the 20th and either. I, I, so on a practical level for, for, you know, and just briefly for, especially I think for John's question, which is this, this one about his yeah. evangelistic zeal being dampened down by this question of did, did Christ die for the person I'm walking past on the street? Uh, how would I know? Well, I mean, what, what, what would you say is how should John rethink? John should, John should that? see this person walking past as somebody who's made in the image of God, who God is calling and longing to, to, to remake in his image so that they will reflect his glory into the world and reflect the praises of creation back to its maker. Um, that's what every human being was made for. And uh, God in his love wants to reach out and do that to enable that. And if some staunch Calvinist comes back and says, but this is a very weak view of God, because if God wants to do that, why can't God do it? And are you saying that God is just merely making it possible rather than actual? I say this again is, is the imposition of probably a 17th century philosophy. And when I look at the gospel stories of Jesus, do I see Jesus making things merely possible? Well, yes, he says to the rich young ruler, here's how to do it. Come and follow me and give up all your stuff. And the man goes away. Was Jesus failing then? No, because that's what love does. Love reaches out. And if people say, no, not for me, thanks, that is still the victory of love reaching mm. out, even though I, it doesn't I get, have the consequences it might I, have wanted. So I get the sense then, Tom, that, that you do believe this is an invitation that is open to all, Yes. but not all will necessarily embrace. Exactly. I don't think all do embrace it because I'm not a universalist. I've never been a universalist because I think the New Testament is full of quite stark warnings about those who do such things will not inherit God's kingdom, etc., etc., uh, which apply to, to practicing Christians as much as anybody else. Not that we can be once saved and then lost, but that it's only in the perseverance and the, the constant daily dying to sin, etc., that you discover who is really following Jesus all along. 
Final question here from Timothy in Ontario, Canada says, I'd like to hear Tom's thoughts on the idea of conversion. I've grown up in an evangelical Protestant tradition and conversion seems to be considered the quintessential Christian experience. This idea seems to undergird much of our culture, teaching and music. We're frequently encouraged to share our testimony, which seems to be code for our story of conversion. But I was raised as a Christian. I've never been anything else. Is it possible that we've over-universalized this experience? Might there be a case to be made for a second or third generation faith? The lyrics, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, don't actually seem to fit with my life story. So, um, yes, it's, it's not that I don't think Timothy is at all worried that he isn't, quote unquote, saved or a Christian. Yeah. It's just he hasn't had a conversion experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I very much get that. And I'm in the same boat. I grew up in, in a very undemonstrative and unshowy, but definitely Christian household. And it was assumed that you said your prayers and you went to church and we read, read our Bibles, etc. And it grows upon you and you discover that you're in a world where praying is is what you do. And yes, that for me, there have been various crises and various problems where I've had to say, oh, my goodness, I think I need to say, okay, here I am, take my life in a whole new way. But that's part of maybe hitting puberty, maybe hitting young adulthood, that there are crisis moments in anybody's life, but the Christian faith has been there all along. So I'm in the same boat as Timothy here. I was really helped by hearing the late, great J.I. Packer say something when I was a student, which is that um, it's easy to get fixated on the idea of conversion, but what matters is convertedness, i.e., It's not about whether you've had this or that or the other experience. It's where you now are as a result. Are you with Jesus? Are you en Christo, in Messiah? Are you a baptized and believing follower of Jesus? Are you one who is pressing on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Because if all those are true, then doesn't matter what happened. As Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward for what lies ahead. Um, I actually listened this morning. A friend sent me a podcast link, a a YouTube link to uh, the baptismal um, uh, testimony of a friend of hers um, just from this last weekend. And it was very moving. This was a person who'd been right away from anything Christian or whatever, and God brought her wonderfully back. And I love to hear those stories. Um, And one of the reasons I love to hear them is that I don't have a story like that myself, (laughs) but I know that God regularly does that in people's lives. And that's entirely God's business. But I thank God that I and many others that I know have been finding ourselves in this state of convertedness in the sense of having the Holy Spirit welling up within us, leading us to repent of sin and to follow Jesus and so on and so on and so on. Um, that, that, that's, how, that's how it's been for us. Mm. And, and so, I mean, it seems to me that when Timothy says that it undergirds much of our culture, teaching and music, yes, that often is the case in certain churches particularly. But of course, there are many other churches where you know, if you say join a choir which is singing Handel's Messiah, that's the great biblical story. At no point does that say, now, what about you? Where are you on this map? It's just, we're all singing hallelujah together. Um, let's not bother how we got there. Let's enjoy the music. Yes. I mean, I once was blind, but now I see, obviously, for, for the author of that hymn was very significant. Um, John Newton. Uh, John Newton um, yeah. Former slave yeah. trader and so on. But, but 
obviously won't necessarily quite reflect everyone's story. There's going, no, I mean, I, I, I've always appreciated that, that um, analogy that C.S. Lewis had for this. Um, I, I may even have mentioned it on a previous podcast, but um, he said uh, a person get, it's something like this. Anyway, a person gets on a train in uh, Paris and to, to, to arrive in Berlin. Um, one of them gets on during the day and knows the exact moment that they cross the, the border Another person takes the sleeper train, falls asleep in France, wakes up in Germany, doesn't know when they cross the border. The point is they've both arrived at the destination. Yes. And that's the. That's very point. good. Yes. That's um, very good. And, I'd, and, forgotten, I, I'd forgotten that. Where does Lewis say that? I you can't know? remember now off the top of my head, but I've often used it to actually uh, along these lines. Uh, my yeah. wife and I, Lucy and I, have quite different stories. And mine is a right. bit of a wham bam. I can tell you that the night when it all happened sort of conversion um lucy's is very much that i just grew into this yep, yep. childhood mm. and but we're both at the same destination is the point we you know yep. and that's we, great it doesn't that's great. matter anyway um hope that's helped in some way yeah. uh for for timothy in ontario um time is against us and we're we're out of time uh it's been it's been great chatting through these issues with you as usual tom goodbye thank you Thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that replay from our archives. If you want to ask NT Wright anything, then subscribe to our newsletter at premierunbelievable.com and we'll send you the link to submit your questions, as well as giving you access to hours of bonus content. See you soon for more Ask NT Wright Anything. <laughs>